Welcome to Music History Monday for January 16th, 2023. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title of today's podcast is The Blockhead, Anton Felix Schindler and Beethoven's Conversation Books. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the death on January 16, 1864, 159 years ago today, of Anton Felix Schindler in Frankfurt at the age of 68. Born on June 13, 1795, in the town of Medlov in today's Czech Republic, Schindler was, for a time, Beethoven's factotum, his secretary and general assistant. He was also a scoundrel and a profiteer who, after Beethoven's death, lied about his relationship with Beethoven, stole irreplaceable objects and documents from Beethoven's estate, and falsified and destroyed many of those documents, some of which he later sold off in order to make himself look better in the eyes of history. Boo-hoo for Schindler. The making himself look better in the eyes of history thing didn't work, and today he is regarded as the patron saint of lying and thieving employees. Among the Beethovenian documents Anton Schindler took upon himself to remove for safekeeping were Beethoven's so-called conversation books. Beethoven's conversation books. It took an agonizingly long time for Beethoven to go completely deaf. His hearing loss began in 1796, in his 26th year a buzzing in his ears and a slow but progressive loss of high-frequency hearing. By the fall of 1802, Beethoven had cut himself off from much of his world out of fear his infirmity would be discovered. Having been assaulted by doctors and the useless and often painful remedies they prescribed, Beethoven had come to realize that his condition was incurable and irreversible, and he considered suicide. But he survived his crisis by convincing himself that like the great man of his age, Napoleon Bonaparte, he, Beethoven, would struggle against his enemies, fate, despair, and physical disability, and emerge victorious through his music. Beethoven was still playing the piano in public and attempting to conduct as late as 1812. Between 1816 and 1818, he employed various ear trumpets built for him by his erstwhile friend and the presumed inventor of the metronome, Johann Nepomuk Maltzel, who lived from 1772 to 1838. Sadly, by 1818, Beethoven's deafness had advanced to the point where the ear trumpets had become useless. From 1818 to 1827, the year of his death, Beethoven carried around blank books in which friends and acquaintances could write down their side of a conversation, conversations during which Beethoven would speak out loud. 
Beethoven also used the books for private purposes, to jot down notes and ideas, drafts for letters and other documents, shopping lists, and even some brief compositional sketches. The great majority of these so-called conversation books were roughly seven inches by five inches in size and contained between 73 and 94 blank pages. Despite the fact that the conversation books represent only one half of a conversation, reading them is like listening to someone talk on the phone, they are nevertheless a goldmine of primary biographical information. Instead of having to rely entirely on memories and anecdotes that inevitably become embellished over time, the conversation books tell us exactly what things Beethoven was talking about during the last nine years of his life. For example, there are lengthy discussions about his legal battles with his sister-in-law, Joanna, discussions concerning the Ninth Symphony, which received its premiere on May 7, 1824, a description of a visit from the then 11-year-old Franz Liszt in April of 1823, and all sorts of material on Beethoven's late music, including his late piano sonatas and string quartets writes musicologist Nicholas Marston, quote, Paradoxically, the greatest value of the conversation books may be thought to lie in the trivia which they preserve. Everyday cares, gossip, malice, and humor, all is presented with utter naturalness. In this respect, the conversation books present a picture of Beethoven in his natural environment, which no other documents can rival." Unquote. Obviously, the surviving conversation books do not contain every single word spoken to Beethoven between 1818 and 1827. During that period, Beethoven became relatively skilled at lip-reading, and some friends, like Archduke Rudolf, had no trouble communicating orally with the B-man. Beethoven also kept chalk and a slate that could be wiped clean during conversations. And if a conversation book or the slate wasn't handy at a given moment, any piece of paper would do. Still, it was said that at the time of Beethoven's death, there were some 400 conversation books packed into his Viennese flat at the Schwarzspanierhaus, the house of the black Spanish priests in Vienna. For our information, the last conversation book entry is dated March 5, 1827, three weeks to the day before Beethoven died on March 26th. Which brings us painfully to the frankly sinister activities of the individual who obtained the conversation books after Beethoven's death, one Anton Schindler. Anton Felix Schindler, 1795 to 1864. Schindler moved to Vienna in 1813 at the age of 18 to study law. From 1817 to 1822, he worked as a law clerk in Vienna, though to hear Schindler tell it, his real love was music. He was a competent violinist, and while working as a law clerk, he played in various ensembles in and around Vienna. He briefly met Beethoven in 1814, though Schindler later claimed that he and Beethoven had become close friends in 1814. 
It was just another of his bald-faced lies. In 1822, Schindler gave up his law gig and became a violinist at the Theater in der Josefstadt and then in 1825 at the Theater am Kartnertor. With his income as a violinist assured, Schindler took on what was a second full-time, if unpaid, job, that of Beethoven's, quote, factotum, amanuensis, and scapegoat, unquote, for roughly 18 months, from late 1822 until the spring of 1824. Beethoven furiously parted ways with Schindler soon after the premiere of his Ninth Symphony on May 7, 1824, believing that Schindler had cheated him out of money. This may or may not have been true, as Beethoven was notorious for believing that everyone was cheating him out of money. Nevertheless, Beethoven and Schindler had something of a rapprochement in late December of 1826, and thus Schindler was around during Beethoven's last three months of life. Maynard Solomon, Beethoven's principal English-language biographer, writes, quote, Schindler detested Beethoven's relatives and was jealous of many of Beethoven's close associates. His attitude toward Beethoven himself was compounded of servility, worship, and hatred in more or less equal parts, all of which alternate freely in his influential but unreliable biographical studies of the composer." Unquote. Alas, Professor Solomon is here sugar-coating things. The weather is unreliable. Schindler was a liar. It was Schindler who wrote the first major biography of Beethoven. According to the recent Beethoven biographer Jan Swafford, Beethoven, Anguish and Triumph, 2014, Schindler's biography is, quote, a work of the most remarkable mendacity and biographical incompetence. Hardly anything in it can be trusted on its own. A maddening predicament for future historians, because surely some of it is true, unquote. The German poet Heinrich Heine, 1797 to 1856, described Schindler as, quote, a long black beanpole with a horrible white necktie and the expression of a funeral director, unquote. It is thanks to Heine that we know that Schindler's business card included the phrase, l'ami de Beethoven, friend of Beethoven. Beethoven's friends detested Schindler. Beethoven's friend and student, Ferdinand Ries, whose accounts of Beethoven the man and composer are, gratefully, as accurate as Schindler's are inaccurate, wrote, quote, from beginning to end, he, Schindler, was like an old house nag. He can go to hell, unquote. He can go to hell. That is a sentiment that Beethoven shared. But in his last decade, Beethoven, who was increasingly incapable of dealing with the real world on his own, desperately needed someone to take care of his business and domestic issues. And since he was not able or willing to pay for that help, 
Beethoven had to take what he could get. And one of the folks he got was Anton Schindler. Beethoven's distaste for Schindler was made clear by the names he called him, from Lumpenkerl, scoundrel, to Hauptlumpenkerl, chief scoundrel, to Papageno, the bumbling birdman in Mozart's The Magic Flute, to Blockhead. Whatever he chose to call him, in the hanger-on that was Anton Schindler, Beethoven saw a faithful errand boy, someone who jumped when he said jump. Conversely, writes Jan Swafford, quote, in Beethoven, Schindler saw his fortune and immortality, unquote. Thievery and Forgery In the previous quote, Jan Swafford employed a telling word. In Beethoven, Schindler saw his fortune. For someone in an unpaid position, fortune would appear to be the very last thing Schindler should have expected from Beethoven. But Schindler was indeed a lumpenkerl, a scoundrel, and he understood that his fortune would come in the guise of alternative forms of compensation by writing lies about Beethoven and by stealing his stuff and then selling it. Soon after Beethoven's death, Schindler got into Beethoven's flat and stole everything he could get his hands on, including many of Beethoven's letters and manuscripts, Beethoven's ear trumpets and eyeglasses, various statuettes of male figures, a carved alabaster clock, which was a gift from Beethoven's patron, the Princess Lichnowsky, given many years before, as well as the famous Immortal Beloved letter. But Schindler's biggest score was Beethoven's conversation books, which were thought, at the time, to number some 400 volumes. Over the following years, Schindler meticulously went through those conversation books page by page with the intent of glorifying Beethoven and himself in any way he could. In some cases, he altered pre-existing conversations. In others, he forged entirely new conversations to make it seem as if he'd known Beethoven longer than he had. For example, all of the conversations between Beethoven and Schindler dated as having taken place between 1819 and 1820 are fabricated. And to make it appear that Beethoven actually trusted his opinions and artistic judgment. When a page less flattering to Schindler or Beethoven could not be altered, Schindler tore it out. And if there were too many such unflattering pages in a given book, Schindler simply destroyed the entire book. In 1846, Schindler sold the surviving conversation books to the Royal Library, today the German State Library in Berlin. That sale consisted of 137 conversation books and a number of loose leaves of paper. We'll never know how many books Schindler originally stole and then destroyed. But whatever the number, there can be no doubt in the words of Nicholas Marston that Schindler was responsible for, quote, an appalling act of vandalism, unquote. Incredibly, it wasn't until 1977 
that scholars first recognized Schindler's extensive forgeries in Beethoven's conversation books, though by the early 1990s, Schindler's fabrications had all been identified, or so it is presently believed. But the lost pages, and indeed the actual number of lost, of destroyed books, remains unknown. And for this alone, the name Anton Schindler will forever provoke low, flatulent, raspberry-like sounds from posterity. In closing, the Beethovenian elephant in the room. The previously quoted Dr. Nicholas Marston, professor of music theory and analysis at Cambridge University, observes apropos of the conversation books that, quote, although Beethoven had good reason to bemoan his tragic fate, which rendered him almost totally deaf, posterity has good reason to be grateful for his affliction. Had Beethoven's hearing not been seriously impaired, there would have been no need for those who came in contact with him from 1818 onwards to communicate with him in writing." Unquote. Again, posterity has a good reason to be grateful for Beethoven's affliction. On the surface, that statement is as cold as a spumoni enema, but in fact, when it comes to Beethoven, the issue of his affliction is the elephant in the room, the gun on the table, the gorilla in the closet, an issue we'd rather avoid, one we'd prefer not to discuss. But we don't come to Music History Monday for hedging or prevarication, or good taste for that matter, witness my previous Bimoni comment. And so the hard questions must be asked regarding the issue we'd prefer not to discuss. If Beethoven had not suffered his extended and agonizing loss of hearing, would he still have retreated into himself and by doing so found a source of inspiration he might never otherwise have discovered? If Beethoven had not had to struggle against encroaching deafness, would he ever have created an utterly new sort of music that depicted his struggle against his fate, his deafness, a struggle capped, musically at least, by victory? Barring the extended agony of his hearing disability, would Beethoven ever have become Beethoven? The answer to these questions, sadly, tragically, is that Beethoven's existential pain is our musical gain. Without his hearing loss to isolate, afflict, and inspire him, he could never have conceived the musical struggles and victorious catharses that mark so very many of his works, including his symphonies numbers 3, 5, and 9. Had Beethoven remained a fully hearing, a fully vested member of his musical community, it is most unlikely that he would have forsaken that community to the degree that he did in his late music. And yes, without his deafness, we wouldn't have Beethoven's conversation books. Bless him, Ludwig van Beethoven paid a high price for our pleasure and edification. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by the Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, 
please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.